Zabalim in the past named Muhammad al-Kisai. And when the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, you can narrate from the Isra'iliyat, the stories of the Bani Israel, he was the most liberal in his usage of these stories in his book on the stories of the prophets. So he, in his book, talks about uh, how cats were created, right? Why cats were created and when. So what he says is that on the Ark of Nuh, السلام, the mice increased. There was a mice problem on the Ark of Nuh, right? So then the people complained there are too many mice. So at that point, uh, Prophet Nuh, he made dua. He said, uh, we can't come off the ship yet. Too much water still, but there's an invasion of mice. There's way too many mice. And it's eating into the food that the humans are supposed to eat. And you know these mice are the reason that diseases spread, right? So he said at that point, Allah Azza wa caused the lion, a male lion, to sneeze. And he sneezed out, out of his nostril, a kitten, a little kitten. And then a female lion sneezed. And she sneezed out, a female kitten. Right? And then they went around running around eating the mice, right? As their that's their trade in life or their purpose of their existence, and also uh, then cohabiting and then becoming you know more cats. So there's the first. That's what he said. That's, really that's the, the the Hebrew story. People think that the ark was how, like a ship with then, the mast, right, and sails. That's how it's portrayed in children's books and whatnot. But the ark was actually a rectangle, like a soap box, like those boxes that used to carry that you put through your little soap in it mm. it's a rectangle basically the third the first third humans lived on it with their food the second third animals and then the bottom third uh, the trash the waste and there was a, like a door uh, to each one and a ladder and then there was a ladder to the top where you can get air and sun and whatnot so the also the story goes also one of the hebrew stories is that the, the bottom third got so filled with trash that the scent was so bad that everyone was complaining. So Prophet Nuh again made dua to Allah Azawajal, and Allah created an adult male and female pig with the sole purpose of eating trash. Right? And the pig, if you look at it, is the solution for waste because it will eat anything. It will even eat styrofoam. Right? The pigs will eat anything. And then when the pig dies... So the obvious question is, all right, the pig dies. Now you have a whole bunch of pig carcasses. No, the pigs will eat the dead pig, right? They have absolutely no restriction on what they can eat, the pigs, right? So this is uh, the Hebrew stories on how cats and pigs were created in the Ark of Noah. Interesting. Muhammad al-Kisai narrates it not as like absolute truth, but just as something that was in the books of the Hebrews that the Prophet permitted us to, to, tra to transmit them if they didn't contradict anything that we believe. Uh, and the Prophet specifically said, read them and recite them because they have very strange stories in them. And by his wording strange, right? It's almost like read them because you're going to be interested in their stories. But also he's this, the same word, ajaib, also implies that there's, you know, take it with a grain of salt at the same time. Because you don't know if it's actually true right, or not. Right. So the wording of the Prophet has both sides in it. Interesting. So, uh, I wanted to introduce uh, our episode today. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Uh, so, we have uh, back, you know, once again, we're back after uh, a few of us. We were, some of us were on trips. Uh, it was a busy week last week. So, now we're all back. So, uh, Alex Saad and Dr. Shadi uh, are here with me today, along with Haris, uh, who's just sitting in with us. Um, so, today, we're talking 
it's a hard topic to really explain, but we're really talking about gender roles and culture. So Alex and I have been talking for a bit on you know how we would even talk about this episode because initially we went about it as you know how to be a man or something to to in regards to that, but we didn't like that because everybody's kind of talking about that. So one thing that's been hitting me and I've been reading more about this is a lot of men who are very anti-feminist, right? And a lot of Muslim men who are extremely anti-feminist to the point that, you know, like it would bother somebody if it read if they read some of that stuff, you know, right? And I'm not sure if you guys have run across this where, now I was reading something recently where it was like, you know, uh, Muslim men, you know, like having a very vulgar reaction to feminism almost. And so... I want to talk about gender roles and culture and identity and kind of what that means in, in today's age. Um, so I'd start first and foremost at this concept of culture, right? That culture, I feel like in America, we have this allergy as American Muslims to hate everything about culture as if it's mutually exclusive, uh-huh. right? will say that this is Islam on the left and culture is on the right and they cannot mix. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, this was never the case, right? Um, and since you guys are of the Mal- uh, follow the Maliki Madhab, which, you know, you guys always bring up. Let me just say, Ali is the door. Yeah. Let, me just, let me just put that out there. <laughs> um, <but> anyway, <laughs> so, so I'm gonna just put that out there. But anyways, the you know a big part of the Maliki Madhab is you know the the custom and the order of Medina, right? And so this wasn't like a mutually exclusive concept in the Deen that you have Islam on the left and you have culture on the right. Uh-huh. Right, so I mean, I kind of want to talk about this in general. Okay, good. Let me uh, bounce off of two, take us as a starting point, two points that you said. The first thing has having to do with the almost, I guess you could say, radical reaction to to feminism, which itself is a very broad target that you can't even, I don't even know if it, there's an agreed upon definition for it, but I think we all know what you're talking about, right? Right. Uh, and one of the reasons that this exists is because it all has to do with listening, right? And when people speak, you have to listen very carefully. And, and when, whenever we don't listen, which is a branch of arrogance, right? Then we automatically jump to conclusions. There are a lot of things that you know, people say which is wrong, but the reason for their saying it is, is correct, right? In other words, their solutions are wrong to things, right? Or their expression even may be offensive, but the reasoning behind their thought their th- uh, is actually sound. And on both sides of people who would be described as uh, hardcore feminists, be it Muslim or otherwise, and on people, on those who are their uh, intellectual adversaries, this is what I find the case to be. That both sides have, in what they're saying, some elements of truth that you cannot deny, right? Some wrongs on one side. And some wrongs on the other side that you can't deny, but I find that the expressions are have become so aggressive because maybe uh, neither side is listening, so their volume is getting louder, right? And this matter is getting worse because neither side is listening. And I think the fair thing to do is to put emotions aside, 
and put perceptions aside and actually listen to what the per- person is saying. One of the best examples of this is uh, Fatima Mernisi. So she's considered to be one of the first feminist Muslim authors. I don't even know if she'd describe herself as that. But Fatima Renisi, the things that she says would make you want to shut the book and throw it or use it for the fireplace, right? <laughs> there are some of the things that she says. Now, if you actually look into what she's saying, why she's saying what she's saying, you will agree that there have there are some reasons for her grievances. Now, the conclusion she makes as a result is totally unacceptable, right? And I liken this to Karl Marx, who Karl Marx, I love his critique of capitalism. Who doesn't, right? But go to his actual solutions, right? And you realize this is insane. It's toxic, right? It's toxic, right? So this is what's something that I'm coming to is that the element of, 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 of separating between uh, the things that people say separating between some points that you have are sound, right? And if we address those while being sort of numb and not emotionally offended by the other garbage that you're saying, then at least we could get somewhere. So the dismissing, absolutely dismissing everything that everyone says is never good for anyone. It's going to lead to two extremes. That's the first point that I wanted to mention. And then the second point is what you said about Muslims and Western culture. Now, there are two camps. I see two camps, right? Uh, One camp wants nothing to do with Western culture, and another camp wants everything to do with Western culture, like culture worship, okay? And we saw this with uh, celebrating uh, Christmas to an extent. Oh, can we, can right? we talk about that? For we'll talk about it. <laughs> Sidebar. But one of the reasons, one of the reasons uh, that uh, this is the case is that Western culture is not all neutral. There are certain elements in Western culture that are toxic. And that's what we talked about before, what we said that um, what's his name is going around. Uh, his name is uh, skipping my mind now. His main thesis is that Western culture does everything that is the opposite of the successful cultures of the world, which is basically he defined success by long lasting cultures. And he said we mix genders. Right. And separate ages. Right. Mm. And we would add to that. We have no respect for anything divine. This is part of culture. Right. It's in The Simpsons. It's in every show. Every uh, musician at some point is going to disrespect, like Madonna, disrespect anything okay. sacred. So I would say these are the three things, right? Including the parents as sacred. That's a sacred relationship, right? So these three things, I think, that are serious issues that cause people to throw the whole thing out, right? Right. So those are my two starting points and anyone who wants to add to that. So just to touch on what you just finished saying, um, and I don't want to take this into too academic a, a direction, but if you do some research on the phenomenon of cultural Marxism, mm-hmm. you know, and its origins in the Frankfurt School, most of those scholars who during the Second I think World you should War, expand a little because not a lot of people know the history. Well, so just brief, like a really brief overview is that there was a group of Marxists um, they called themselves the Frankfurt School. They were based in Frankfurt, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Second World War, during the Nazi buildup, they all emigrated out of Germany. Most of them landed at Columbia University. Mm. And then eventually some of them got positions elsewhere. And they started publishing here as, as well as uh, they had published in Europe. Um, and a lot, of their, a, a lot of their argument was that you can't trust in some kind of vanguard elite vanguard the way that the previous marxist movements did Mm. so like stalinism Mm -hmm. leninism 
that doesn't work because that vanguard is not going to work out. They just become corrupt themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So you end up with what you had in the USSR. Uh, their point of view was that you needed people who had nothing to lose. And the way that you get to people that have nothing to lose is you have to destroy everything that they have to depend on. One of the key elements of that are all the traditional roles in society, mm-hmm. gender roles, family relationships. You need these people that have that they're not connected to anything except for this identity, right? Mm-hmm. Or this movement or this this ideology. And then you'll have true revolutionaries that can tear down the halls from the inside. Mm-hmm. And what's So your- is this a real, like, uh, I mean, I, I hear a lot about cultural Marxism, but is it more of like a conspiracy or is it an actual reality? Well, I mean, they, they, these are Ivy League academics that publish books and they, you can read them. They're in the oh, university Marxism. libraries, right? Who would you say is the most <coughs> name recognized uh, uh, cultural Marxist? Um, you we know, could, we could pull it up. Sad, that's your that's yeah, your job. Pull Why it up. Typing on the keyboard. You <laughs> should no, by the, before the before he even finished. before he even says it. No, so so Theodore Adorno um, is probably one of the most uh, one of the first names that you're going to come across. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what an eighty-five Harris? No. Harris pulled up a thing on Bruce Jenner. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there. Well, the, the, isn't that like a, one of the tenants? Of, I don't even uh, know how to say this dude's name, but. Um, since the 1960s, the Frankfurt School critical theory has increasingly been guided by Jürgen Habermas. I don't know. Habermas. Habermas. Uh, yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah. That's a name that's recognizable yeah. if you're in any philosophical. Yeah. yeah so the, these these people were operating in different fields in the uh, liberal arts, right? So some of them were art critics. Some of them wrote about art. Some of them wrote about sociology, economics, etc. Yeah. But they all had this same idea that we want to bring true Marxism, this true like pure Marxism, like egalitarianism across the board. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is a whole other topic that we can discuss and uh, what that really means. Because you can have equal opportunities and still end up at unequal results. And okay. In fact, that's usually what will happen. Of course. But now, people it, cry about unequal results, not about equal, unequal opportunity. Okay, now explain uh, to the listener how cultural Marxism came from, from this intellectual thing at universities <laughs> to now a, a seemingly online movement, right, that appeals through emotions to causes uh, and renders these causes to be causes of injustice that many common sensical views will deem them to be a joke. Well, because it still, it still lives in the universities. Mm. Um, which, who do you see online? It's kids that went to college and they had professors that espouse these views. Mm-hmm. Let me back up a little bit. So how does this happen? This is in the 1940s. People who select other people to get hired for university posts and to get tenure sit on these committees. And there are other professors generally, right, and and administrators. And those people have a certain worldview. Mm -hmm. And so they're only going to grant tenure to people that have a similar worldview. So it's it's almost like it starts multiplying, right, exponentially. impossible. Until you get an entire university system where everybody thinks the same way. And, Sheikh, you've been in the Mm -hmm. university system. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like if you're not of this certain mind Mm -hmm. in whatever your field is, you're not getting in. Now, in the, sci- in the hard sciences, it doesn't matter, right? Because you're doing physics, you're doing chemistry. It's, yeah. it's irrelevant. But when you're, look, when you're talking about liberal, liberal arts studies. Subjective or, ideas. Yeah, it's all subjective. So you, have to have, you want people that are on the same page as you. You don't want people challenging you. It's, uh, the biggest myth is that humans could ever not be biased yeah. right, towards right. their frame, framework. Right? They'll be diver- they'll be di- they could be diverse and honestly differ with uh, people who have different views within the same framework. 
Mm -hmm. right? Within the same framework. But once you exit that framework, even in biology and physics, there was time when anyone who questioned this, the nature that the universe is static, this itself was excluded right. from physics departments. Right? So these biases are impossible to get around. Yeah. So what you have now is an entire uh, culture, an entire university culture where the people who teach liberal arts and in, in liberal arts departments are generally going to have this mindset, right? It was very popular and it won. It won out in terms of the debate, right? They had more positions, they had more power, and they were able to put more people who thought yeah. like them into positions. And this is what they're teaching <laughs> the students. And again, you see this, especially at the graduate school level, you have these kids who are really smart. Uh-huh. That's how they get into graduate school. And they also really want to believe that their professors are, because now they've chosen this as their career, right? Like, yeah. I'm going to dedicate my life to studying this That's subject cool. yeah. as if it's the only thing that matters in the world. And there's no way that I'm going to look at the people who are leading me down this road and they all agree and I'm going to say you're all wrong. So I have to admire them and I have to respect them and I have to believe in them. And it just becomes a a matter of belief. Yeah. And then to look objective, you take some minor issue that's a non that's a dispensable issue and you differ with them on that. Right. And it makes you look like, oh, you're a free thinker yourself and you're not a lamb. Well, I, I, I don't I think we're being a little overly vague. So if we could. We went down the road too far. That's yeah. What yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, people might get confused, you know, what we're talking about and why it links back to... Sad, you can know. you get us to this, the Wikipedia, cultural Marxism for dummies? What's the definition? I got you. Good. And while he's doing that, one of the things I uh, I liked that Abdullah bin Hamid said recently is that it's the it's Islamic tradition operates through logos, which is rational argumentation, ethos. Uh, appeal to authority, which is the authority of God and his prophet, right? And the ijma' of a generation. And uh, whereas today, the discourse tends to be towards pathos, which is emotional. Right. Uh, so cultural Marxism doesn't even have, and, and keep in mind that Wikipedia is also, you know, subject to the same biases that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a smart observation. <clears throat> but cultural Marxism here is... Um, a, a subsection in the wiki article for the Frankfurt School. And the, the note they have here about it is, cultural Marxism in modern p- political parlance refers to a conspiracy theory which sees the Frankfurt School as part of a movement to take over and destroy Western society. So th- really? Th- yes. So they've actually... You're kidding me. There so, was actually so this is, yeah. the official so this entry. Is, yes, the official Wikipedia. There was an yeah. old Wikipedia wow. article which actually, which actually talked about it because I've looked this up before. So it seems like they actually took that one down, and this is the new one. Wait well, a second. So, so, so it's a so subsection. Wanna... It's a subsection within the wiki for the Frankfurt School. So this is like a. It, it's a su- the subheading is cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. So that therefore they want the theory they attempt to destroy Western civilization for the sake of what? Let's read. Let's well, read a little so, bit so, more. So, so yeah. it's it's for the sake of Marxism. So they yeah. it's like the opposite. To spark the revolution. Yeah, it's like it's like to spark the revolution against the proletariat. I see. Yeah. So the, yeah. so this is why they will support every minority group's cause. Mm. So that mm-hmm. there, any, until any there is to overthrow that until the mainstream yeah. culture is totally splintered. overturned. Yeah, I see. Right, and so I think we may have just taken people into like a academic like curveballs well so like, i mean you, people gotta know stuff you know if, you, if you're not in college well you're i think to have uh, when you originally brought up the the cultural marxism point um how is it relating to what oh uh, we, we were, uh, to, we were what, talking what, about what does it tie roles? back into yeah uh, we were talking about gender roles because one of the main tenets of cultural marxism 
and I don't want to say this, but unfortunately, I've done way too much research on cultural you, Marxism. You got to say something now. You you wasted. <laughs> you sunk too much time into looking this up. <laughs> so one of the main tenets of cultural Marxism is the breakdown of society, like you were talking about. That means gender roles, and that and that's where. So people make this argument that because of cultural Marxists, that's why we have transgenders and the transgender movement, and why. You know, we have like radical feminism where they, you know, try to remove all concept of gender roles. They won't, they hate the concept of a nuclear family and everybody together. Yeah. So basically this, the conspiracy theory part of it refers to all these groups, feminists and, and you know, kind of the, the destruction. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that these, these groups are being propped up as a means to destroy mm-hmm. and dismantle Western society. Yeah. And, and by now it's a machine that's no one needs to, to, to. Right, the, the ball is already rolling. 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 Right, okay. rolling. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, you know, the whole claim that it's, a, that it's a conspiracy theory. At the end of the day, you just have to look at academia and you have to say, do people have a, a particular worldview? They do. Is that right. particular v- worldview? It's pretty generally leftist, generally uh, seeking to overturn traditional institutions, the cultural hegemony that they've seen in uh, from the past. Right? Do they talk about patriarchy? Mm-hmm. Do they talk about um, white power, male power, privilege. Do they talk about privilege? Do they talk? Do they use all this terminology that talks about there is a superstructure? Yeah, that itself you're fighting against. could be a conspiracy theory, right? Because yeah. nobody's sitting around like let's help uh, sustain yeah. the patriarchy. Yeah. They're saying that it's just it's it's something that happens culturally in the situation. So here's yeah. organically. So yeah. and the language is often about overturning that conspiracy theory or that su- superstructure that they see in which society. Which is class uh, struggle. It's, it's class, class struggle, struggle. But not financial, but rather culture. Yeah. That's why it's cultural Marxism. I right? see it's the same saying. thing. It's, it's, the just, same it's thing. just taking Marxism, putting it on, putting a spin on it and saying we're going to infiltrate through this culture. Okay, so not just for some people that aren't familiar with Marxism, so the, the basic Hegelian theory that Marx took is that there's a thesis, there's a starting point, the established uh, uh, state that we're in. He called that the thesis. And then there's an antithesis, something that rebels against that thesis, that is the opposite of that. And then it results into a synthesis. Then over time, once that synthesis becomes oppressive, that synthesis becomes over time the the new thesis. Then another antithesis comes, rebels against that, overturns it, and results in something in the middle, which is the synthesis, the new synthesis. Right? So this is the constant concept of a constant struggle between uh, the sort of poor, downtrodden versus the establishment. Okay. Right. Now, I want to note that in this, uh, in our dean, the establishment, quote unquote, which I think is part of this, is that the establishment is always considered a villain, right, uh, in modern culture. Well, right. we'd have to say that the establishment is not always the villain, right? It could be, and it could not be. It could be very good. In our dean, if we take this on, then the ulama become the establishment, and they, everything about them is bad and wrong and needs to be overturned, right? And right. there's that sentiment exists uh, uh, online in a lot of articles, a lot of people's statements, and they uh, mock and make fun of uh, imams, ulama, and the whole concept, right? right. Okay. So that's out there too. And, and so that's where I want to bring this back is the culture that we have in America is very different from other cultures, especially when speaking about gender roles. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you go to a village in the middle of India or you go to a village in the middle of Tunisia, right, and you ask them what are gender roles, it's fairly clear. They're not confused whether a man is supposed to gargle rocks or shoot arrows. Or Wait, Can you explain <laughs> that? What, what is it? 
So I don't understand that expression, gargle. <laughs> gargle rocks. So yeah. it was used by Alex. Uh, okay. Recently. Okay. Like guys, <laughs> to it's denote, very, guy. similar to something else, but I didn't want to bring that up. But. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 Alex uh, recently used the expression gargle rocks okay. to become more manly. Oh, like a gravelly voice. Yeah. Somebody oh, was talking you. about a soft yeah, voice. And yeah, I was yeah. Like, well, what are you going to have to do with I remember. gargle rocks? I remember. So now. make your voice <laughs> yes. sound more manly. I got you. Okay. <laughs> Especially for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, if you go to the middle of Tunisia, right, for them, if you ask them what a woman's supposed to do and what a man's supposed to do, it's very clear, right? If you go, and, and, and traditionally in many cultures, it was very clear. This is only a recent phenomenon within the last hundred years that it's no longer clear it's ambiguous what that means Mm -hmm. and so i want to talk about that a little bit because people make the argument that the dean doesn't necessarily talk about gender roles right that that you know the dean just says that in in fiqh you need to do this if you're a woman if you're a man but gender roles on whether you babysit or whether Mm -hmm. you clean the dishes or whether you go shoot arrows and go hunting it's all arbitrary well when you say clear i'm sure you don't mean clear and always just and good right something could be very crystal clear and therefore stable but not necessarily 100 percent just or good i agree i right? agree yes, yes so just that just so people don't think that what you're saying is just because something's clear doesn't necessarily mean it's just and good oh absolutely but I mean, clarity yes. stability is better than anarchy right yeah but now here's the thing uh, I, I definitely there are not that many details but there are definitely some general, there's a general ethos of what the man has to do, right? And that ethos is summarized in the word qayyumiya, right? Qawwam. And its definitions are, number one, al-qiyam bil-a'mal al-shaqqa. Getting up and doing difficult, the difficult tasks of life, of life, right? Al-qiyam bil-khadamat al-asasiyya, right? Getting up and doing the essential services needed. Whether it's difficult or not, but it's essential. All that's uh, upon the rajul, the man. Attaqim, uh, giving value to the people of your family. This is all in the tafsir of the ayah of Arrijal Qawamun al Nisa. Right? The, the men have a qayyumiyah upon women. Right? So these are the things. And the fourth thing is ta'limul qiyam, education and transmitting virtues. So, for example, uh, a woman who is her first dean teacher should be her father. It should not be a stranger, right? It should be her father. Uh, a, a girl, a sister, her, her first dean teacher should also be her older brothers, right? Whatever they learn, they should come back and teach. Uh, and then a wife, her ideal dean teacher is whom? Is her husband, right? And this makes so much sense. You spend so much time. She could ask so many questions. You could be relaxed with him rather than a stranger. Right. This is ideally, of course, it's not uh, limited. But again, these four things are getting up and doing the hard tasks of life, like paying the bills and whatnot. Uh, necessary, uh, required, necessary, essential uh, tasks of life. And then educating people on the qiyam. And then giving them value so that they don't have to feel undervalued in their home and then go get someone else out there. To give them confidence and to make them feel loved and all these things. And all these things are in traditional stuff as here. So it's very general, right? But uh it's pretty clear that there are this is the this is the obligation, the duties, and the role that the man has in, in these relationships. And also, here's another thing is a beautiful thing in, in Sharia and fiqh when you study, is that there's no concept 
of the roles of men and women, right? It's divided up. There's the role of the husband, the son, a very different role. The brother is a very different role, right? And then the gharib. The gharib is you're not father, you're not husband, you're not... Uh, and the, the nephew, for example, is the same role as the son. He has to view his aunt like a second mother. And then you have the gharib, who's none of the above. A complete stranger that you're not related to me in any way and you're not married to me, right? You're a gharib and you have your own... Uh, uh, duties towards that sister right, that are outlined right. in the sunnah. For example, you're not su- you're not supposed to go and and, and, and chit chat, but at the same time, we did see the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam pass by Asma bint Abi Bakr, whom he knew as a girl, and through her adolescent age, and now she's a woman married with children, and they pass by, and he said, Asma, do you need a ride? In other words, one of our men will get off of his uh, riding beasts, and you can ride, and we could take you to your home. Right? The Prophet ﷺ said this to say to Asma bint Abi Bakr, and she thanked the Prophet, but she said, no, Zubair would not like me to be with a company of men. Right? So we have so many stories like this that teach us how to, to interact with someone who is none of the above categories. Right. And that's where right, it's, uh, it becomes tough for a lot of people living in America how to understand culture and how to understand or right it's very simple in other countries so for example uh, i was reading that marco polo when he traveled from he just left the outskirts of venice and he within a day or two's journey he was in a completely different land right? he was confused and he was like oh you know i don't know what's going on here yeah they say ibn Battuta, he traveled from morocco all the way to china to russia all over you know um the Eastern Hemisphere, and never did he feel out of place because of the Islamic tradition and culture. Now, that goes to say something, right? That the Islamic tradition, although the fiqh laws may be silent, like you said, on what it means to be a man, right? And more so focused on what it means to be a husband or a son or a brother. Um, I would argue that the culture of Islam has, over the centuries, defined really somewhat of a gender role because otherwise how wouldn't culture seem different to people if they traveled ibn battuta's travel is one of the sort of symbols of the achievement of islamic education and the way it was able to permeate so many civilizations faith and knowledge and then create a culture set of cultures that were different on many matters but essentially identical on the most important matters of life, like why we exist, how we interact, right? And what do we do and what do we expect in the next life? These are the essentials that we're able to unify different. Now, unfortunately, I feel like we have the exact opposite. Superficially, we're all the same. There's a target and there's genes wherever you go. And the same food and the same packaging and all these same thing. But everyone has a different belief about everything else. We're superficially the same and essentially uh, different. Right? It's because I feel like there's a, a, a trend, especially in Western philosophy, um, that belief is highly personal, right? It's not communal. That's true. It's not uh you're you're not a it's not a community thing. It's it's inside, you gotta keep it in your home, you know, in your head, in your heart. That never comes out. So yeah. so that's given rise to this idea of like, hey, we're all superficially similar, but on the inside, like I believe this or and, and you believe something point. else. That's yeah. a very good point. You know, it's inter- there's a there's a quote and I think it's from Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad that uh 
the only thing that's now considered uh, vulgar to do in public is pray. Subhanallah. Wow. Subhanallah. It is. I've really thought about that. It is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is. And I want to give a warning to people out there that I'm uh, nearly like 70, 75%, if not more, confident in a negative way that in the future, toplessness and public sex will become normal and accepted in laws. It's already slowly happening. Toplessness, nakedness in general, and sex in public. Let's say on your front lawn, which is your lawn, right? Yeah. Even just think about it. Like if you want to go by that, we have. Uh, I don't know if the term is blue. What it blue ribbon laws or something that blue laws. Blue laws like they're all based on Christian values, right? right? Like no, 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 no doing business on Sunday. Things like this. Yeah. No selling alcohol at certain at, times. After certain times, yeah. And all the moral morals are based upon these Christian values. Now, when you have an entire generation that has spent more time online watching pornography than at church, right? Then why should you not expect that when those people are the city council members or whatever, that they'll change all these laws, mm. right? Well, interestingly, what you brought up. So there's some cities that don't have any public nudity yeah. laws. So like in San Francisco, you don't get arrested for yeah. for being naked mm-hmm. in public. And exposure. Yeah, there's no there's nothing like that unless you're doing something lewd. Um, and however that's defined but also a, a few years ago my wife and i were in new york we were going to the ifc center to watch a documentary mm-hmm. and we got there early so we had some time we went to washington square park which is right nearby and as we were sitting there on the benches uh across came a, a like a protest march or something of topless women who were protesting the mm-hmm. fact that toplessness is allowed for males and not for females yeah. um and it was it was horrendous right yeah. <laughs> like even my wife was like what what is this i don't want to see this garbage yeah. right um, and currently there's, there's a campaign, uh, to, I think it's Instagram or one of those, one of those, uh, social media services that doesn't allow toplessness for yeah. females, but they do for males. Right. And their argument is yeah. you allow us to show everything, but the one, like that one small part, right. Yeah. And that males and females have the same part. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just ridiculous. And it happens because they don't have the original standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a stupid barrier. You know, we're talking about the nipple, right? Yeah. It's a stupid barrier because you shouldn't be showing all the rest of the breast yeah. in the first place, Subhanallah. right? Subhanallah. Like, of course, you start, you don't have any limits yeah. or you have some limits, but those limits allow things that shouldn't be allowed. Yeah. Eventually, there's going to be, you're going to be able to see that it makes no logical sense there's to have no that reason. limit. Yeah, exactly. Why is it this limit only, exactly. right? When you should have had the higher limit. Then this is the same argument. It's the it. same argument for hijab or mm-hmm. modest clothing for men and women, right? Yeah. People go, oh, that's very strict. Right, but you have to have a limit somewhere. We all agree, and this is the beauty of uh, one guy's logic. He says, we all agree that we all have some limit, right? If we agree on that, then the question now becomes who's, who has the right and who is mo- has the most authority to set where that limit should be? Your emotions or some text or what, right? Because we all have well, some limit, yeah. right? Right. So now the reason I, I brought up this subject is very important for the iman of people to know that the Prophet ﷺ said, there will come a time when a moment will pass by people fornicating in the streets. And he will say to them, if you could only just do that elsewhere, right? And that will be the best moment of the time. He will be the best of them at that time. So the best moment, right, at that time is so unavoidable to see people fornicating in the streets openly. And he will say to the people, if you could only just do that elsewhere. And the Prophet said, in the streets, for turuqat. Right? So, I mean, this is something that, reason, the reason I bring that up 
right, about this concept of the legalization, eventual legalization of, of public uh, uh, cohabitation. I, I don't know if there are any kid, people listening to this with their kids in the back seat or something. So I have to be conscious of that. But it's because the Prophet Sallallahu gave that prophecy. So we should be like 100% sure it's going to happen. The question is when, right? And to know that to be against it with your heart and your tongue, right? By expressing in some way, shape, and form that you wish people keep it, keep that private, right? right. That this is the best of you men at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, that's that's a, that's amazing because you yeah. think about it, people hold their tongues on so many things these days, yeah. right? They're, they're not even, they're so afraid to even say, express mm-hmm. disapproval for certain things. Yeah. Oh, let them do what they want. It's their life, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So, so even that idea of like expressing disapproval um, for something that you clearly can yeah. see as an act of like you know sin yeah. is. And is, sometimes is you're tempted to rage and and be so derogatory towards these things. You're and the fitra <laughs> makes you like that, right? Right. But uh, what actually works effectively in the dawah is that you express yourself, right? without those elements that could turn people off because people do listen to the actual content. And if they don't like a certain tone of it, right? But people do respect and are happy that people are uh, expressing some sort of value, some sort of limitation, and some sort of statement that, look, I'm not with this, right? The whole society might be with it, but I'm not. And uh, Alec, who, who is it that wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire? Oh, I don't know. Toynbee? Maybe. Sad. Sad's not typing, man. I got you. Good. (laughs) So, uh, whoever it is, he said that the people who were were destroyed by this, uh, by the fall of the Roman Empire, okay, uh, the people were... Edward Gibbon. Gibbon. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Gibbon said that when the Roman Empire fell, collapsed, everyone who was... the, The people who collapsed was everyone who was culturized with the Roman culture, even if they were far away mm-hmm. from Rome. But the people who were not part of the culture, even though they were geographically inside of Rome, those communities did not collapse, which is an amazing thing and gives a lot of hope, not like he's some kind of a prophet to give us hope, but that forecast of the past, that the people who are in the Roman society but were not culturalized with Roman culture, they didn't suffer the side effect of the collapse of the Roman Empire. Which is important for us. It's very important for the Muslims. Yeah, that's what we are. We are. Uh, it's, it's like ashab al kaf. We're going against the tide, and any uh, and and in some things maybe we're riding with the wave, right? But all for the most part, you can't deny that people of belief we view the world with an anachronistic worldview, Absolutely. a worldview that this is not the uh, the modern modern worldview. Our worldview. Is what they would call ancient, old-fashioned, and, and, and pre-modern. And pre-modern, yeah, yeah. Right, but we, we we're here saying, yeah, it might be we might be further along on the right. timeline, but yeah. that's the truth, yeah. Right, but see, like couched in that whole, oh, you guys are following like an ancient, old way of thinking, is the underlying assumption that old is wrong. Yeah. That 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 throughout history. Uh, progression has always been positive that's true which oh, is yeah. which it's hasn't been the it's, case that's true yeah. it's, it's the myth of linear up, progress yeah, yeah. exactly so and it's been up and down and the funny thing is that you're saying as if oldness is something bad well, right what you're upon today in a hundred years is going to be old so you're actually mm-hmm. accusing yourself right if, retroactively exactly <laughs> right 
you're you're accusing yourself in advance because in a hundred years, all these movements that we're uh, holding down the fort against, right? May Allah give all the Muminian strength to to keep it up. Uh, well, I, I always wonder. Okay, this new idea of yours of the cultural Marxists and these new gender roles and new ways of having families. In fifty years, it's not going to be fun anymore. It's not. There's nothing novel about it. I think it's catching on because of the novelty element, right? So in fifty or sixty years, you guys are going to be old-fashioned. So we, I want to know what's going to happen at that point, right? Sheikh, it's interesting a phrase you said: the new way of having families. There's actually no new way of having families. Even even studies that look at like same-sex parents, right? Yeah. That that adopt kids or one of them gets artificially inseminated or whatever, however method they do of obtaining a child. That there's, they almost always end up gravitating towards there's like one person that like goes out and earns a living and yeah. takes care mm-hmm. of certain responsibilities, and there's another person that stays and cares for yeah, the child and you know takes on that whether it's two men, two women, whatever it is. And there's there are, there are certain things that have to take place. There has to be in the home law and order, and there has to be love and happiness, or else people will just leave when they hit seventeen. They'll hit the road. So you got to have both, but you cannot actually be the provider of both one hundred percent. Think about it. Think about this, right? It's very, it's impossible, I believe, to provide both 100%, right? If you're the the one who is providing order in the household, especially if there are many children and they're fighting and squabbling and you hold court and you get lay out punishments and you yeah. set down rules, right? And you have jobs. Today, this is your job is this, your job is that, okay? Uh, you cannot be the one who's also the provider of compassion. It just it simultaneously work. simultaneously yeah. you're going to provide some compassion right. like the um, uh, eastern symbol of the all black uh, on one side yeah the yin yang with a white dot and the white on one side with a black dot so yeah the the provider of compassion has to observe some law and order and the provider of law and order has to provide some, some love and compassion but you cannot actually be the provider of both right mm. so so I, I remember you mentioned this point about even the man in the Sharia, he has to provide for the home, yeah. right? Like, So I know there's like a lot of this flip-flopping that happens in, in, in the U.S. where yeah. the woman will go out and, and uh, provide. Sugar mama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is this called? Sugar mama. Yeah. Sugar mama? Sorry. Is that the Sorry. term? Sorry. 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 Something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The woman will go out and provide yeah. for the home. So would this be permissible? And the husband stays home to raise the children? Yes. Yeah. Totally unacceptable. Like a stay-at-home dad, basically. For a guy to yeah. be a stay-at-home dad. Right. There's only one time he could do that, that he's got some kind of trust fund yeah. that he's inherited, and he's a millionaire as is. You can stay home all you want, right? But well, here's something that well, I want to talk, too, about. Uh, this is actually something that's come upon with the some modern middle-class Muslims that they actually want to do everything 50-50. Whatnot. But there's another thing that maybe from the past generations that some fathers left off, which is this element of taqim to render valuable the people in your house, to be the one who gives them love and confidence. As a man, that's your job. Like a man is not supposed to be just, okay, here it is. I made this money, right? I got you all this house, right? And now that's it. Game over. I'm done. I'm putting my feet on the couch. Getting my stake and give me the remote control and get out of the, 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 the living room, right? No, the guy, his job is also to make every person in his household feel they want to be there because they're valued, loved, listened to. And this is going to avoid a lot of problems in the future. 
with people who, who, who have this job as being a husband and a dad and whatnot. Well, I just wanted to add something from an earlier statement. Sheikh Nuh Keller says, recommends to people, even if you're from a really rich family and you don't have to work, that you should still go out and, and have an occupation. Yeah. Because your wife will respect you more. That's true. Right. That's even if you're true. like, I'm rich, That's I don't have to do true. anything. Yeah. That's very true. And the funny thing is actually very rich people end up working more because there's more chance when you have money to make a lot more money, right? If you're a trader or something or you got businesses, right? It's to actually sort of um what's the word uh, uh paradoxical yeah. that it's a, the paradox that once people have a lot of money they end up working more because it's enticing to double and triple what you have right. to work to pay your bills is not fun no because you're working just to give your money to someone else right and you're miserable so it's actually easier to stop working when you're in a sort of a depressed state you know right and so i want to talk i want to I think we're we're getting close to an hour here. So I want to talk about both of those concepts of culture and gender. And, and there was a phrase that, that I was reading through that one of the maxims, the one of the five maxims of the law uh, in the Sharia, and, and I'll read out a couple so as people have heard of some of them. So matters shall be judged by their objectives. Certainty shall not be removed by doubt. This is one you know many people are familiar with. Um, and one of them is cultural usage shall have the weight of the law. Right. That what is correct in culture, you know, you know, has the weight of the law. So like I'd give I'd like to give an example. So, for example, if you go to India, right, I've been to India. If you go to any if you go to Southeast Asia, if you go to a masjid in India, at least where I'm from, if you go there without a kufi, Mm -hmm. right, you'll get kicked out of the masjid. Mm -hmm. Right. You'll get kicked out of the masjid or you'll get hit. Somebody will slap you. Or they'll come while you're praying and put a kufi on your head. That's they, they actually have the lined up straw kufis. Yeah. Yes. I wonder what the lice epidemic <laughs> is like. <laughs> that, that, that happened to uh, Ahmed Fahmi when he went to India. Really? Yeah. He went in to he pray and somebody was like, here, you have to wear this kufi. But he was like, I'm not wearing it. I don't know who said that's been on. <laughs> I know. And it was a whole back and forth struggle. Wow. Yeah. Really. So in India, if you go to most places and most massages in India, if you're not wearing a kufi, you will get kicked out. Yeah. And so you see a lot of uh, desis, desi Hanafis in in America, mm-hmm. right? They don't wear the kufi, right? Um, because they think that, oh, this is just a cultural thing. This is just something we don't have to do. But actually, you know, a lot of people, when you get into the law, you realize that this is actually uh, an important facet. It's, it's very close to wajib in the Hanafi fiqh, Hanafi fiqh that it, your salah would be makruh at that point, Right. However, people don't realize this. And if you go to ask somebody in the village in, in India, why why don't you why do you wear a kufi? Do you have to wear one? They'll be like, You have to wear one. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no way you cannot you cannot pray without wearing a kufi. It's like why? It's like yeah. well, I don't know why. You just have to do it. Right? Well, here's the thing about Arf. <laughs> a lot of people read about this in today's society and don't realize when we talk about Arf, it's not everyone's Arf. What right? is Arf for the It's not listeners? the custom of you know the it's not the custom of anyone it's the custom of the upright uh, you know most upright muslims of the of the era or what they approved of right so it's arf in some places that you have uh, piercings all over your face it's arf in some places it's just like normal right but is that something that the up the people who pray five times a day and go to the masjid all the time what they approve of as a, a general body that we would put it through that filter. If the ulama and the general pious Muslims would approve of something 
that's what we would accept as urf. Like, mm-hmm. what is urf today that's acceptable? Um, certain things related to clothes, right? Like jeans. There was a time, if you wore jeans, that's a symbol of the other side, the enemy, right? You're not allowed to wear jeans. In Turkish society, in Ottoman society, if you wore those tight pants, the pants that we know now, that was your siding with the enemy, right? Just as if he's still today. kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> For them, the pant had to have a very low crotch, right? That's a sign of a Muslim. He wears those types of pants, right? Uh, just like today, if you wear certain uh, brown jacket with a red and white band on the sleeve, what do you per- what do you perceive as? If you wear a white frock with a big pointy white hood, what do you perceive as? Right. So even in Western culture, there's orf. Like I said before, everyone has their limits. The question is who sets the limits. So today, no one is going to have issue with Western pants or T-shirt because it just it it doesn't symbolize anything negative anymore. Right. So the, my point is that when we talk about orf, right, we're talking about the orf of a certain group of pious, knowledgeable people. And what they approve of and do, and not just the order of anything. Right. right. Very important point to discern. And 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 that is important, especially when and and I like to take it a little bit away from gender, even when when it comes to other things in the deen, right? Like a lot of people just look at, you know, their homelands, right, and they think that you know all of this is just orf, and Islam doesn't say any of this, mm-hmm. right? Especially when you move away from. You know, people have moved away from following a, a madhab when you move away and you, and you become like, you know, only Quran people, yeah. right? Like that, that's when you start encountering some of these problems is when you throw out your entire culture, which in and of itself had a lot of rulings of fiqh and law and understanding that were passed down generation to generation, like the, the Kufi I, uh, example. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, one of the things that bothers me a lot, and I'm a convert to Islam, is when I see people who automatically dismiss things as oh that's just culture because it's more prevalent in one society or another and they go that's not islam it's culture Mm. even if the texts are silent on a certain practice but an entire muslim society has taken this on and it's it's not something that's disapproved of in the books it's just a common a common practice it has taken on the weight of something that was in the books right right and it has the same ruling it it can become a wedge here's a great example right we're we're all in america and the common practice here is that if you make if you set an appointment for 9 a.m., you're there at 8.59, yeah. right? And it should be obligatory on the Muslims to adopt this as part of our culture yeah. because we're here. It might not be the culture in another country. In another country, maybe you say 9 a.m. and you mean sometime early yeah. in the morning, and that's fine there, but that's not what it is here. And so here, yeah. this takes on a whole yeah. new responsibility. As a Muslim, you, it's almost like a wajib. So here. the structure of the argument for that is the statement that the matter itself may be totally non-binding upon you, but the fitna that you cause by not observing it, that's where you're sinful, right? That's where you're sinful. So there are many halal things that just the Muslims do. We just all do. Like, for example, tarawih. We all do tarawih. We pray some masajid 8, some 20, and uh, we pray from Surah Al-Baqarah down to Surah Al-Nas. Now, none of this is an obligation, Right? But if a mess, if I open up a message and say, look, you know what? It's all sunnah. So guess what? This Ramadan, we're not having tarawih, right? It, by the book, I've done nothing wrong. But what have I done? You created a lot of fitna for people and confusion. I won't be sinful for not establishing the tarawih. I'll be sinful for creating confusion with people, right? 
That's what I'll be sinful about. Uh, it's also halal for me, completely halal for me to wear uh, a big turban, right? Uh, a thobe to put kohal under my eyes and to take a walk in the suburbs, right? Totally halal. In fact, we know that the sunnah, the turban is a sunnah. We know that the kohal under the eyes is a sunnah, right? Uh, to have a walking, all these things. However, you're not, you're never going to be sinful for that. But you will be sinful if you are intended or you're callous towards the perception of people and you scared the lights out of an old lady in her home who every the only person she's seen with a turban has been Latin, right? And now when her son wants to become a Muslim, she's freaking out and she's flipping out, right? This is a, she's, she's got a fair percept. That's her perception, right? And if we don't take care of that, take account of that, we're sinful for that fitna, but not for the LX aspect of putting the turban on itself. This is how, this is how we structure the, the way we view these cultural things, whether we observe them or not. Yes, it's a matter of, so like if you, if you dress that way and you go off to Eid, yeah. where all the Muslims are out and they're praying out in the park it's a whole different thing than totally different yeah. you're just walking in your 100% like, non-Muslim yeah, neighborhood exactly, right. with the intention of I'm going to show these exactly. kafirs right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a I'm lot like, of it is intent right what is your intent exactly you know yeah. and if you're intending to scare people or you know or, or give off a certain look yeah. right then then obviously you got to check your intent a little bit yeah you're going to be sinful for that intention right for that for that callousness and and a lot of times if we're not connected to people of a certain background and persuasion we won't be sensitive to them right Right. but once we get to are related and connected somehow we're not going to change our views but the way we (laughs) express ourselves is going to be different right and you know this more than any of us because you have family that's not muslim right none of us have family that's not muslim so when uh when we see something it could be very easy for us to say what a bunch of load of yeah uh garbage right uh now, someone who's, let's say, their grandma's upon that, yeah. he may believe that it, it is totally false and wrong, but he may be very selective of how he expresses himself so that he doesn't turn away his grandma who he's trying to bring into Islam. Yeah. And just like, even as a matter of respect to your family. That's how it is. Yeah. yeah. That's why people, when they mix more, their beliefs shouldn't change, but their expressions may change. Just to just have well, that sense too. Another good example, and this will be my last thing because I don't know where we're running out of time. But if you go to the peninsula, mm-hmm. you're going to see women wearing a lot of black. Right? This is what women wear. It's the color they wear. If she wears gray, she's uh, flashy. If you go to Indonesia, yeah. if you go to uh, Tanzania, Zanzibar, if you go to some places in West Africa, the women dress very modestly, but they wear colors. Mm-hmm. Neither one of these is obligatory, and neither one of them is haram. Mm-hmm. It's just what a cultural expression, and it's mm-hmm. perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And here's what we have to say. Is both sides are perfectly fine. Right. Yeah. Right. Like Habib Omar, when he was asked about the barrier between men and women in the mosque. Because in Yemen, they have a very strict separation, physical separation of genders. Right. His answer was, in the fiqh, right, there is no barrier right, in our fiqh. It doesn't, it's not obligatory to have a barrier in the mosque. However, in our culture... This is what we do. And it's halal. And no one's upset about it, right? So it, when we say culture, certain things are culture. Like Moin said, people dismiss stuff because it's culture. If it's culture, you don't need to dismiss it. Right. 
it's 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 fine both ways right right that's the important thing it's right. not like yeah. it's culture therefore we have to dismiss yeah. it yeah yeah no it's culture therefore you can do it right. and you cannot do it if you want and that's why we need to it's important for american muslims to evaluate the the deen and the law you know the the american culture needs to be evaluated in terms of the deen and the law yeah. we've done almost the opposite right like we've taken parts of our deen out mm-hmm. you know for the sake of american culture yeah. right Whereas, you know, other cultures like, you know, I, I can use India, you know, uh, just personally have done the opposite where they've taken the culture that was there in mm-hmm. India and they applied the deen to it and fixed it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and sort of molded it to their own. Yeah. Right. So people will now go to the mosque, <laughs> into the masjid still, but you now wear a kufi. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Like it's like they've molded the culture to Islam. Of course. Yeah. There's Here, a. There's an example of an entire country that's done that, which was after the separation when Pakistan was formed. Yeah. That's essentially yeah. the reason it was formed because of, let's take this existing culture, the Hindustani culture, yeah. and let's mold it around and Islam. Le- and right? let me tell right. you, Islam is the easiest thing to come into a people and create a culture. Right. Like Ramadan. Right. Anytime, what is culture? It's what people do together and they all love it. There's no reason to do it. Right. But we all love doing this. Right. That's what culture, in a sense, is essentially. No, I don't think there's a thing out there that draws people together better and more and more consistently than Islam. Through Juma, through uh, Ramadan, is amazing. Thirty times a day, the whole community is coming together. I mean, thirty times in a month, every day for a month, the whole community comes together for four or five hours a day, right? Thirty straight days. Uh, so many other things, and around these things, cultures develop. Right. It's almost like in, in London, it was uh, crazy that I guess it's like it's become part. The dates is part of the culture so much so that the non-Muslim restaurants and uh, 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 food stops, uh, stands and whatnot, they'll all be buying dates <laughs> to sell to the Muslims. <laughs> so oh. dates has become part of the culture that's even spilled over into the non-Muslims. Yeah. Right. Even right. though the Muslims are, right. what are they, like 7 or 8% yeah. of England? But in London, they're like 10%. Yeah. Right? So dates. But dates are also amazing. So anybody who's not <laughs> having dates, like, what's wrong with you? Like, how have you never had this? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so that's why I think Islam is the easiest <clears throat> thing to produce a new culture. Or not produce a new culture. Rectify or add to right, enrich, the culture. Yeah. Enrich and add to a culture. And create these linchpins. Around which our cultural stuff revolves. Yeah, the only thing that I would add is that what we don't want is for people to hold so tightly to their own specific manif- cultural manifestation of Islam that they come here and they've been here for three generations and they're still a masjid where only a certain type of people go to, right. and they're still having That's everything. Fitting. Yeah, it's That's it's fitting. ridiculous. That's yeah. fitting. Like you've been here for a long time at this yeah. point. Like you have to That's you have fitting. to adjust a little bit. Right. You have to allow like. Arab people to come into your masjid yeah. and give, well, that's a, where, give a khutbah. Yeah, that's right. where fiqh yeah. gets involved. Because yeah. if you're if you have fiqh, Arab people, African Americans, like yeah, yeah. if you're an imam and you have fiqh and you come from a culture, let's say we all had to move to China right now. We have our own American culture, right? But now we have Chinese uh, attendees, right? Yeah. If we have any fiqh and knowledge, we will not try to recreate America, an American <laughs> right. thing, even though we love yeah. it, right? Our own way of doing things, even though we love it. But we will actually start to learn and have other have the locals, uh, you know, develop well, right. I, the, the, the culture. Right? I'm gonna I'm gonna say this one last. There's one other thing about this. I keep saying it's the last <laughs> thing, but um, it's all good. I think one of the problems too is 
everybody who heard that probably agreed. We moved to China. We're, all, we're all probably going to start wearing a Chinese type of outfit mm-hmm. when we go to Juma, and we're going to try to learn some Chinese. And let those people just do what, do yeah. certain things in the message. Yeah, and we're going to adapt to them. And when our kids grow up, they're going to be more Chinese than they are whatever we are, right? I think that there's a barrier for a lot of people who come from other countries, from third world countries, from the Muslim world, from Latin America, from wherever, with the United States because of this the geopolitical implications of what the United States is. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, I came here and I don't want to be an American because my, you know, whatever your family came from, they want to come here for a minute. But yeah, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to because America has all these uh, cultural, geopolitical uh, entanglements that are not positive. Which what is, we do in our foreign policy is horrible. And so a lot of times people have with, come with a really negative attitude about America and Americans. And so they're like, I don't want my kids to be that. Right? Whereas we don't necessarily have that baggage from somewhere else. Yeah. Like if I move to Turkey... I would expect my kids to act like Turks by the time they grow yeah. up, right? Which is, which is part of the cognitive dissonance. Like, you hate everything American, yeah. yet you came here, right? Voluntarily, here you are, right? It's a hypocrisy. No, yeah. <laughs> now, here's the thing, though. There is something part of our dean, though, that uh, when there is a culture that is a non-believing culture that's tox, there is toxicity in the culture itself towards religion, right? Then there is some wisdom. There is some wisdom in making sure you're always in in a way counterculture. Mm-hmm. So if everyone is doing why, I'm actually going to do anything but why. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What doesn't make sense is if everything is going why, then I'm going to go Egyptian, right? Well, why Egyptian? It could be anything else, <laughs> right? That's the, that's the, that's where the cultural problem happens where I think China is a good example of that shit, yeah. right? Because China is a communist state uh-huh. and they're very anti-religion. Yeah. But the Chinese Muslims have a Chinese exactly. Islamic they have expression. Their own thing. Yeah. They they're actually ahead of the ahead of us in time because they have been struggling with uh, an anti-religious yeah. establishment right. for hundreds of years. And right? that's within their own culture. That's yeah. the craziest thing. They're yeah. not transplants. They can't even <clears throat> they can't even figure out when was the first convert. It's yeah. so far back yeah. for them. But they have established themselves. They have their own Chinese Muslim culture. And it is distinct. Amina, she's a Chinese Muslim, right? She's a convert in our community. And she tells me that it's a very distinct culture, right? And they are very aggressive in the protection of that culture. And the clarity that they are not uh, whatever the other religions are. Because there are a number of other religions. But so they're aggressive about it. So no one should also think that when we're saying that nothing has to be distinctly Daisy or Egyptian, because you're here now, we're not also saying jump on the train and become this, right. uh, you know, yeah. uh, proto yeah, Muslim exactly. American. Or yeah. some Muslims yeah. are trying to be more American than anyone else. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you don't realize that the most American thing is to be yourself. Right. Be what mm-hmm. you believe yeah. in. That's the most American thing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because America is just an amalgamation. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. Historically, that's what it's been. Yeah. yeah. You know, this French guy who came and he wrote the book on Tocqueville. Yeah, the Tocqueville, right? Um, and then the re- recreation of that through Borat, right? <laughs> so basically, he wrote a book. For anyone listening, don't watch that movie. I know. I didn't watch the movie. I saw some of the, I saw some of the clips uh, that are free on YouTube, but a while back, which are pretty funny. <laughs> uh, uh, so he goes, basically, he wrote a book on American culture. If he came today, he would have to write volumes. He would probably be confused halfway through his trip. If he landed in New York, He'll have like a chapter. Then he's going to drive a little bit. By the time he gets into southern Jersey or Pennsylvania, he'll be like, oh, my gosh, I didn't need another volume. Right. Volume two, middle America. Right. Mm-hmm. Then he goes to the south. Right. Volume three, because the cultures are so vast. And nowadays with the Internet, it's within the same home. 
Mm-hmm. You right. can have total different views of everything with people in the same home. You often do. Yeah. yeah. So, so I want to I want to close this and I want to touch on one last topic before we do that. Um, there was actually a good paper I read on this whole um, topic that we discussed on on culture and deen. It's called Islam and the Cultural Imperative. Uh, it's written by uh, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah. <laughs> Uh, so I'll actually post it on uh, the SS podcast website. It's very good. He goes into some of the examples that we talked about as well. Um, so I have one more thing to talk about. So since we haven't seen each other for two weeks, uh, a lot of nonsense has happened online. So I really want to, want to talk to you, Sheikh, about this Christmas thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what's there to talk about? So I remember I said, so I said, so I remember I said last time I've, I've been seeing a lot of uh, people posting about Christmas. And Saad was like, he was shocked. He was surprised. You know, are you serious? People, you know, Muslims posting about Christmas. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, a few days later, I see a picture of a Christmas tree in a masjid, right? And it says Merry Christmas, right? Inside of a masjid. So just because we just ended this holiday season, I, I just want, yeah. I'm just curious as to your thoughts here. Well, uh, <laughs> first, no one here has a Christmas tree, right? Harris, you don't got a Christmas tree, right? Good. I'm really good. <laughs> so the, well, if you did, we would have ripped you apart. <laughs> Here's the thing. Let me just, just look at it this way. If someone gives you the Islamic analogy that this is the birth of Jesus and we have the birth of the Prophet, right. let me talk to you and without being disdainful to you, talk some sense into it. Celebrating the birth of Isa bin Maryam, if you did it in Islam, you were rewarded. It's an excellent thing. The Prophet ﷺ went to in the Isra and the Mi'raj. He went to the birthplace of Prophet Isa bin Maryam. This is a fact. Why do we, he's the messenger of God, right? He's more important than anyone else. If he goes to a location, there's value to that, right? So, however, the way in which we would do it, the motive which which we, we would do it, and the intention which we, with which we would do it would have nothing to do with the way other people do it who establish that Jesus is the Son of God, right? right. So we would purposely, if that's what we wanted to do, do everything opposite, right? We would purposely do everything the opposite, right? To make sure that this is original and it's not confused with something else. So Christmas trees would be out. Not a Christmas tree and not a palm tree. <laughs> now, this is incredibly important. The distinction that you can't follow them in their celebration on their dates, which is a false date, but like established false date. Not like, oh, yeah. there's question about yeah. what day no, no, the Prophet yeah. was born. So, Allah, they yeah, right? so people go, oh, you're not sure if it was the 12th of Rabi Allah, it could have been the 9th. No, no, we're meaning like it's the completely the wrong time of year. But it's, aside from that, the way that they do it, that they incorporated all of these cultural practices from pagan religions, right? The tree, the colors. The only thing in it that has any basis in the original story of the birth of Isa, a.s. Is the gift giving, mm-hmm. and even that they're they're supposed to do it like six days or ten days later or whatever it was. But forget because all the of three that. Kings, yeah. yeah, but even if we, even if we ignore all of that, what the sheikh said, they're celebrating the birth of their God. So what do you you can't you shouldn't even congratulate them on it. You shouldn't be happy for them. You shouldn't say, hey, I like your holiday. Congratulations, have a good holiday weekend. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. They're celebrating one of the most offensive, one of the most egregious things that human beings have ever done is mm-hmm. to say that Allah was a person even though he was a prophet so he said to to say that Allah was a human being and it's probably in my estimation my 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 opinion my review of the history of Europe and of the enlightenment and of atheism developing out of western europe it's the source of 
all of that. The rejection. The, the rejection of religion, mm -hmm. the major worldwide rejection of religion that we have today is because people equated God with a human being. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at that point, at that point why all bets are off. what to do. Yeah. Yeah, you're a human and I'm a human. Why he looks like me. I saw the painting in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. He was like an old dude. And uh, yeah. he was hanging out with this young guy that looked just like him, but younger. Yeah. So what does it matter? So you can't be happy about this. You can't celebrate. If you want to celebrate Isa Ibn Maryam, and he said to Sam, do a molid for Isa somewhere. Do sometime. It, do it sometime yeah. in the summer now, where there would have been date palms. Now, here's a question for you. You uh, you come from a convert. You're a convert. You mm -hmm. have your families, not Muslim, and they celebrate Christmas. Because I, may, I come from a standpoint where uh, the idea of celebrating Christmas was so far from my mind. It would never happen, right? From the way I grew up, right? But for you, it's different. So why don't you um, tell us how you handle it? Now, uh, for other converts out there who have their mom's inviting them, their dad's inviting them, bringing gifts, everyone's happy. Yeah. What do you do? Well, I mean, I, I'm not in any position to talk because people's family dynamics differ. They're all different. And some people, if they don't show up for, for an invitation like that, that might be the last time their parents talk to them, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I, in, in my personal experience, it's a little bit different. My parents are more easygoing with that kind of stuff. They always have been. Um, so I don't, I don't do you Christmas all, you stuff. You don't want to impose the way you do things on others. Right. Uh, yeah. Personally, I don't do the Christmas stuff. I don't do it. I don't do it at all. I don't give gifts. I don't say Merry Christmas. I don't give a card. I don't hang out in front of the tree. or I don't do any of that. Um, and I think if it's possible to do it, I think that it's the better way because my experience is that people respect you more and respect your religion more. And that's the most important part when you're serious about it. Mm -hmm. If you seem, if you don't seem like, and I don't know, I've seen being an extremist and go here and be like, Astaghfirullah. They don't even know what that means, right? <laughs> like, I'm not saying be rough with your parents. On the contrary, just tell them, oh, well, my religion, I, I don't, I don't think that this is, yeah. uh, this is not something that I can do. You're not, you're not coming to pray. I eat salah with me. You're not fasting Ramadan with me. Mm -hmm. So I'll come see you tomorrow and, you know, we can go out to breakfast or something, but I'm not going to come over tonight and have, you know, the special dinner that you have or I'm, or maybe I'll come and I'll eat, uh, especially if you come from an Italian family and you're a convert. They do this thing with fish that's really mm -hmm. good. Go for it. it, it, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, family, the family gathering is one thing. The belief element, yeah. the celebration of that belief. <clears throat> yes, just stay, stay, wide, stay wide of it. And the third thing, which I think is has, like I would say, 15% validity, that Christmas is no longer a religious holiday. That has maybe 15 to 10% validity. But... Really? The, what is the Pope doing? This is the biggest day, right? Mm -hmm. In the church. It's the biggest day in every church to argue that it's a, just a global Thanksgiving type of thing, right? It's not. To me, it, it, well, the day that the Pope no longer celebrates Christmas, right? By the way. the day that it, that's, that's the case. I think that that's worse. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and let me tell you why. If you're saying that, well, this has just become like a global day of celebration holiday, and of yeah. giving out presents. And so that's why it's okay for us to jump on, on top of it. You're saying that the this horrific kufri shirki celebration has become now a global phenomenon, yeah. and so you gotta you gotta hop on it. The sources the source is terrible. <laughs> now, That's even worse. At least if you're just saying, "Well, he's a prophet," and but if you're saying it's a secular thing based on you know just old school pagan shirk stuff. Yeah. So I'm gonna jump on it. That, that's even worse to me. Let me tell you, it's like it's like Halloween, Christmas, ho yeah. winter Halloween. Yeah, that's what it is. Get lost. <laughs> Let me tell you that uh, Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala said about him, uh, "Peace is upon him the day he's born." Every child is born crying. Sayyidina Isa bin Maryam is born smiling. 
the day he dies, which means that he didn't die yet, right? Because right, yeah. the prophet the Quran says when he dies, which he didn't die yet, uh, he will not be suffering any pain the way everyone else does. When he's resurrected and he, his soul now has a body again, he will not have any pain in the moment of resurrection. He is the chosen by Allah, one of three to be created without full parentage. Adam, neither mother nor father. Hawa was created from uh, Adam, السلام, but no mother. And Sayyidina Isa, no father and a mother. Right, so he's one of three. He's also one of five select great messengers. Okay, and he's also one of two, the only or the the only one who lives a life, goes up to heaven, and comes back to finish his life. He is so special, Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam. And despite this, just because he is worshipped on the earth, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala tells us in the Quran that he interrogates Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam. He says to him. Allah takes ask Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam and he says, Did you tell people to take me and my, my mother as a God? Allah knows that Allah, he didn't do this. Allah Azza wa knows very well that he's innocent of it, 100%. But to show us how egregious, how uh, uh, horrible this belief is, right? how horrific the belief is, he interrogates Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam, so that all of those Trinitarians who are watching realize how bad it was what they did. Right? Allah tells us the Takadu Samawat, the, the heavens, yatafattarn, that wants to open up and crack open, split itself open, like a someone tearing his shirt apart. right? And the ground wants to crack itself open, just by hearing that people said God had a son. So just so that people realize, yes, uh, Christians have a lot of similarities as a religious people with, back, uh, with fighting against certain secularisms. Yes, the, the Quran says they're humble. Yes, the Quran says they will be your allies, more so than the pagans and the Jews, right? But this doesn't mean that we're going to all melt together, right? And and, and everything's going to be, you know, the hunky-dory. There is, this issue is not a small issue. You know, but, what's, you know what's ironic about this, though? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Harun, he posted a status about it, that uh, the only people that seem to have a problem and want to celebrate Christmas are the people who have a problem with the Sharia in one form or another anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's and it's funny, and I was just thinking that, you know, the, the some of the people that are going to listen to this lecture just because it's on, listen to this podcast just because it's on gender roles and whatnot, may possibly be the same people that celebrate Christmas. <laughs> well, but I, I, I would tell people too, people who are from heritage Muslim backgrounds, not mm-hmm. converts necessarily. You want to celebrate something and you're going to make these weird excuses about who he's also a prophet and he said to Sam, Go celebrate Passover with the uh-huh. Jewish people. Yeah. Because guess what? That's mostly a secular atheist Jews still celebrate it. So that's, you can uh-huh. make your secular argument. It's the celebration of one of the miracles of Allah through his prophet Musa. And uh-huh. he said to Salam. So go celebrate it with them. Yeah, it's a yeah. big event. Go have a Passover yeah. Seder with the Jewish people. Yeah. You won't do it, right? Yeah. How about having yeah. a, having a celebrate the birthday of Prophet Lut yeah. and what he stood for, yeah. right? Think about that. It's purely, it's purely like a cultural. I'm missing out type thing. It's. I'll tell you what it is. is, I'll tell you what it is. It's something deep in his head, in or her head, that in sixth grade, she couldn't go to the Christmas party, or she didn't go, and she cried about it, and it's sitting there deep inside her head. It's a confidence issue, I think. If like, if you're confident, why do you need to go and borrow anything, right? Yeah. I mean, if you were born into, and I, I, I can say this more than anybody else here if you were born into a muslim family 
you've already been given the greatest gift you're ever going to receive. So have some have some humility about it yes. and be thankful. So I think uh, we'll close, inshallah. Yes. So uh, this was a great episode. Thank you guys. Thank you, Harris, mm-hmm. for joining us. Um, so assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wait, no plug? No plug? No plug. Today. Okay, all right. Marjum salam. All right. All right. Assalamu alaikum. Subhanallah. Allahumma alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.